Great to be with you. The last time uh, somebody called me Reverend Hales, I was in court, so um, not sure what to do with that. <laughs> like Grant said, uh, my name is Bryce Hales. I'm here this week with my wife, uh, who serves on your board, serves your board as an advisor, and uh, we live in San Luis Obispo, California. I pastor a, coast, uh, a church on the central coast, which is an unspeakably beautiful place. We're uh, recruiting interns, by the way, uh, on our trip here. I'm going to leave you to think about if I'm joking about that or not. <laughs> we live in this beautiful place that's full of wonder. The majesty of God is on display 24-7. And yet I talk with people every day, Christians and otherwise, who feel like the sense of wonder, of awe that we expect to experience in life has uh, escaped them. And so one of the things that we're trying to do at our church is recapture the wonder and awe of what it means to live in a world that was created by our Creator God. So this morning, briefly, I want to consider with you the first two verses of the Bible. Genesis 1, verses 1 and 2. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the water. The word of the Lord. I'm assuming that you're familiar with the story of Harry Potter. <laughs> Harry Potter, of course, we know is um, a boy that's being raised by his aunt and uncle, the Dursleys, who are horrible people. They um, abuse Harry and neglect him while spoiling their son. Harry lives in the <laughs> closet under the stairs where he is um, neglected and he has no idea what his life is all about, but everything changes for Harry one day when he receives an invitation to attend Hogwarts School of Witchcraft and Wizardry. And Hagrid the Giant shows up, and he cannot believe that Harry doesn't know who he is. He has no idea who his parents were. His parents, James and Lily Potter, were killed in this epic struggle of good versus evil, but that story has not shaped Harry's life in the least. Harry's life changes that day when he learns his story, when he learns about the world as he uh, is beginning to experience it, the real world that he actually lives in. And so the question that I want us to think about this morning is this, what changes about Harry Potter when he learns who his family is? Well, in a real sense, there's nothing that changes about Harry. He's still the same 11-year-old boy, the same preferences, the same uh, cares, but in another sense, everything changes about Harry when he learns who he is. He is famous. He is wealthy. He has power he has never understood. He is loved. And all of those things were true about Harry before he discovered who he was but his whole life makes sense to him once he understands where he came from. And that's what the book of Genesis is doing for us. Our origin story tells us about who we are. 
tells us why we are here. It tells us what we are meant to do in life, and my hope this morning is that our origin story will help us understand uh, everything about the world that we've crea- been created to live in so that we understand more fully who we are. I think it's helpful for us to think about the context of the book of Genesis. The book of Genesis uh, covers a, a very long period of time, but think about this. Who was the first uh, group of people to hear the book of Genesis? You've heard these words many times, I'm sure. The first group of people to hear the book of Genesis was ancient Israel, coming out of slavery, on their way to the promised land, coming out of slavery after 400 years living as slaves in Egypt. Uh, 400 years is a very long time. Just for contrast, I looked this up the other day. George Washington died 224 years ago. (laughs) 400 years is a very, very long time. 400 years of being told that your only purpose is as a tool, an instrument of production to satisfy the needs of someone else. You're here to make Pharaoh's life better. You have no days off. You have no collective bargaining. You get no disability pay. There are no safety standards. If you complain, your job is only made harder. Think about what 400 years of that as your existence. For as long as your family can remember, that is who you are. And it's during that, it's coming out of that experience that God speaks to his people. And he says to his people, I want you to understand who you are. This is your story. So here's the question. Is a fairy tale (laughs) going to be helpful to a group of people who have lived for 400 years in slavery? Absolutely not. That's the first audience. They needed to hear who they were. So let me ask you this question. Do we need to hear this? Do we need to hear this story? We live in a time that is often called secular. And what that means for us is that most of us believe a story that goes like this. Jamie Smith says this in his book, How Not to Be Secular. Once upon a time, everyone believed in sprites and fairies and gods and demons But as we became rational, and especially as we marshaled natural explanations for what we used to attribute to things like spirits and forces, the world became progressively disenchanted. Religion and belief withered with the scientific exorcism of superstition. What he's saying is that we have less need for God because we have naturalistic explanations for pretty much all of our life. And so pretty much everybody we know believes that story about the world that we live in. And I say this not to say to you at Covenant College, beware of that big, bad, scary, secular world out there. I say that because increasingly this story defines the way that we live and operate as Christians in the church. And so it's incredibly likely, uh, we, we now live in a world where Those of us who say that we're Christians, those of us who claim to have reverence for the Bible, those of us who believe in Jesus in some way, shape, or form, we still assume that we live in a world where we need God as much as we need a CD player, something that used to be very useful but no longer 
has much of a need in our day in and day out lives. I say that to you to say that we might be subject to a form of captivity ourselves. A form of captivity that is actually one of our own making. We need to remember who we are. We need to remember our origin story. We need to hear the voice of God telling his people, this is who you are. Will myths and fairy tales do the trick? Absolutely not. So this morning, two things that I want you to notice in this passage. Two things about the God who has created us to live with him in his world. The first thing is that God was there in the beginning. Or you might even, you can wrap your head around it, say it like this, God was there before the beginning. Genesis 1, 1, in the beginning, God. What Genesis is telling us is that yes, this is the origin of all that exists, matter, planets, space, time come whizzing into existence, but what's hard for us to wrap our heads around is not just the beginning of the physicality of our world, but the, the beginning of time itself. When all things began, God had already been existing. This is our creator, no beginning, no end. If you go all the way back, there is never a point at which you can reach a point where God did not exist. Now, why does that matter for us? Well, there are all sorts of implications, but I only have time for one this morning. What this means is that everything finds its origin and its purpose in God. Everything finds its origin and its purpose in God. And what I want to explore with you for just a moment is the reality that human existence and human identity finds its origin and its purpose in God. And I want to illustrate that by referencing an atheist philosopher. Any philosophy majors this morning? <laughs> I was a philosophy major for a week once. <laughs> Jean-Paul Sartre was a French existentialist philosopher, died in 1980, and uh, Jean-Paul Sartre wrote this great book called Existentialism is a Humanism, which if you're looking for a title for an upcoming essay, I would highly recommend to you. Um, and he says this, he's making a clear distinction about what it means to live in a world that was created by God versus living in a world that has no hum uh, divine uh, purpose behind it. And what he says is this, he uses the example of a designer who creates a knife, and he says one sees that a knife has been created by an artist who had a purpose in mind for it. No one would produce a knife without knowing what it was made for. When we think of God as the creator, we are thinking of him as a supernatural artist, such that when God creates, he knows precisely what he is creating. Thus, the concept of man in the mind of God is comparable to that of the knife in the mind of the artist. God makes man according to a definite purpose, exactly as the artist manufactures a knife according to the purpose for which it is intended. Here then is the problem according to, to Sartre. He says this, philosophical atheism of the, athe of the 18th century abolished God, but still wanted to talk about human nature. He's saying that philosophical atheism in the 18th century said there is no divine purpose behind anything, but they still wanted to talk about life and human nature like there was a purpose and intention to it. 
Sartre says, in contrast, his own view, which he calls atheist, atheistic existentialism. He says, atheistic existentialism of which I am a representative declares with greater consistency that if God does not exist, it is necessary to draw the consequences of his absence to their very end. There can no longer be any a priori good since there is no infinite and perfect consciousness to think it. It is nowhere written that the good exists, that one must be honest or must not lie, since we are now upon the plane where there are only men. He quotes Dostoevsky saying, if God does not exist, everything would be permitted. Jean-Paul Sartre says that that is the starting point. Do you understand what he's saying? He's saying there's a very clear distinction about the way we understand ourselves if we understand ourselves to be living in a world that has a creator versus if we understand ourselves to be living in a world that does not begin with a creator. If something has a designer, whether it's a knife or a person, then we can say that purpose corresponds uh, to, to what it means to live a good life or a bad life corresponds to the purpose for which we were designed. But if there is no designer, there is no purpose. And if there is no purpose, then we can no longer say that things or people are good or bad if we correspond to that purpose. Now, you might hear that and think, well, that's great. That means that we live with total and utter freedom. We can do whatever we want. And that's where Sartre gets to, and then he says this. The problem with human existence is this. Because there is no God, man is condemned to be free. Now, why would he say condemned to be free? <laughs> I think what he's describing is what we experience when we sit down to try to choose something to watch on Netflix. <laughs> when everything is possible, the need to choose and then sit through what we choose feels like tyranny. <laughs> and what Sartre is saying is that's not just a description of your Thursday evening, but that's a description of your entire existence in a world without God. We're condemned to be free. Now, you might look at that and say, and we live in a world that, that says, that's great, isn't it wonderful to be free, but have you seen what it's doing to the world that we live in? Genesis says this, if all things, including human identity, find their origin in God himself, then it means that human identity is not something we achieve, it is something rather that we receive from God. Human identity means, what it means is this, that your dignity, your value, your worth, your purpose does not come from what you do, from what you accomplish. Neither does it come from looking inside yourself and discovering who you are and what makes you happy. Rather, they are given to you because you are created by a God who says, I've placed my image in you your dignity, value, and worth in life are received from God, not achieved by you. Therefore, they are not fragile, and it means that you can respect people who disagree with you. That is utterly, utterly uh, life-giving in a world that says, I can only agree with people if they affirm me. God was there in the beginning. All things find their origin in him. 
through him and for him. But the second thing that I want you to notice in this first two verses of the Bible is this, that the creator moves towards his creation. Genesis 2, the earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep. Deep it is impossible to do justice to uh, the, 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 the language there when the Bible speaks uh, when the Bible says that God speaks in space and time come whizzing into existence, what, exi- what initially exists is this kind of primordial chaos. Um, the earth is without form and void. It is uninhabited and unproductive. And then the Bible says this, the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the water. The triune God is hovering over the unproductive mass of creation. The word for hovering, scholars tell us, means fluttering. It's like a, it's the way that a mama bird uh, hovers or flutters over her nest, protecting, nurturing, caring for her young. This is how God interacts with the chaos of creation. He moves towards his creation to nurture, to care, to protect, to cultivate. It's human nature, isn't it, when we see a mess, to want to observe it from a distance. We've all had the experience of driving on the freeway, maybe you call it the interstate, uh, and as traffic slows down and you're like, what in the world is going on with these people? Why don't they just keep going? And then you get up and you see the wreck and you slow down and take a look, check out what's going on. Maybe you've seen a person who is struggling, a, a, a person who's behaving badly. A child, a younger sibling, maybe your roommate, a friend. See people kind of losing their stuff and realize, I can observe this from a distance, but if I get too close, it might cost me. So the impulse is to keep our distance, and the point is this, God does not have that impulse. When our creator God looks at the earth and it is formless and chaotic, he does not have the impulse to keep his distance. Rather, he moves towards it in order to care and to cultivate it. The rest of the Bible is the outworking of that story. We see that that is God's impulse in creation, and we see also that that is God's impulse in redemption. And so this is the way that the New Testament introduces the the second person of the Trinity. When Jesus comes to earth, The Apostle John says this, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. You see that reference back to Genesis 1. He was there in the beginning, before the beginning with God, because He is God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made, and then the Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. And we behold his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Let me ask you this this morning. What is the end game of that statement? Why did Jesus come into the world? Not so that you and I would believe in a generic God. Not so that you and I would become more moral human beings, not so that we would learn what are the right and wrong things to take a stand for. Here's the end game. The creator moves towards his creation. 
when there's nothing beautiful or productive, he still moves towards us. The end game is this. The creator comes into a world that has turned its back on him so that you can know him. So that you can live in the world that he created. Here's the good news. This great God who existed before the beginning did not merely speak everything into existence and he didn't merely speak humanity into existence, but he took on our humanity. And so when Jesus begins his public ministry, he begins his ministry by being baptized by John the Baptist. And it says that when he went down into the water to be sprinkled by John, that (laughs) the voice of God the Father said, this is my son who I love. And the Holy Spirit descended or fluttered like a dove and rested upon him. And what God is saying in a powerful way in Christ is this. He is saying, I am making a new creation. Jesus has come to remake the whole cosmos. God doesn't send his son into the world simply to make us nice or to help us explain the gaps between our naturalistic understanding of the world or help us to believe in some generic deity that exists behind the clouds but has nothing to do with us. When Jesus comes, we see the creator God moving towards his creation. Towards the end of his life, Jesus laments over his people and he says, oh Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, yet you were not willing. Picking up on the language there of the spirit hovering, fluttering over creation, Jesus comes to say, I care for you. He comes to pay the price that is necessary because of our sin. So it happens on the cross, but the question again is why? What is the goal? Jesus comes in order to bring people back to God. Jesus comes in order to make God known to us. That is the purpose for which he comes. That is the telos towards which all of human history is moving. And we know that's true because of the final chapters of the book of Revelation picture God descending from heaven to earth. And it says this, now the dwelling place of God is with humanity. With Genesis 1 the life of Jesus, the final chapters of Revelation all point to is this, God exists. All things exist for him and all things find their origin in him and you were created to know him. That means that you don't have to live with fear. You can live with a generous posture in a world that is broken because the creator has come to redeem his creation. And all of human history is moving towards a party, a feast that is about you knowing the God who created you. So I don't know how that affects your afternoon. But here's where I want to land today. This is the story that makes sense of your life. You can know him. This is your world. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you that you speak and everything comes into existence and finds its origin, meaning, and purpose in you. 
but we thank you that you have spoken to us most perfectly and fully in your Son. That your speech isn't just yelling at us from across space, but it is a coming to be with us and taking on our humanity. We pray that that reality wouldn't just be a proposition that we affirm, but a truth that gives meaning and shape to our existence. Would you do that in us, we pray, Jesus. Amen.